Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello James. Hello Sam. How are you today? I'm very good. Good. Now, Histories of the Unexpected is the show that demonstrates how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, and that everything links together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, the history of furniture? The history of furniture was, in fact, all about hiding, persecution, social control, and the invention of comfort. (laughs) Or that the history of the smile is about none other than Charles Darwin, electrocution, the French Revolution, and the history of smugness. Oh, that's good. The smug smile. The the smug smile. And if you want to know more about that, you'd have to come to see us live. You were? Are we live at the moment, (laughs) In our live show, on our tour. Good. Today, we are doing the history of eyes, which is a... It's a classic, unexpected subject, because when you said, let's do eyes, I said, what? (laughs) I said, I don't know what you're talking about. How can eyes have a history? But of course they do. Um, So let's just do our usual thing and start off off the top of our heads, just thinking about the history of eyes and see where we end up. Um, Where are you going to? Where are you going to? Well, you start. You start with eyes. Well, you know, um, let's just. Where I start with eyes and thinking about it in this historical brainstorm is with my poor eyesight. Ah. And if I lived, I think I would be dead by now if I lived in, in former times because I am so blind. I didn't know that. I literally could. Oh, I am so blind. Short-sighted. Short-sighted. So, so short-sighted uh, that I would literally, like we are sitting here probably about a metre and a half away from each other. And I have no idea. I would have no idea who you were hmm. uh, looking at you. Uh, over there, and so, so for me, it's about um, it's about eyesight across the ages and the invention of uh, spectacles. I mean, there are early examples of spectacles going back to about the twelfth, thirteenth century. People using using corrective lenses, but I imagine that the history of of mass uh, glasses use yeah. is relative is relatively new. Yeah. Um, well, I've had laser eye surgery. You've had laser eye surgery. Yeah, which is um, it's kind of it's it's weirdly linked to my present and my past and my future. Oh, are you going to have to have it again then? So I was short sighted, but I've had one of my eyes corrected, 
Right. Um, which means my left eye has remained short-sighted and my right eye now is slightly long-sighted. Oh, so they, I need, did they not do a good job? <laughs> they did it on purpose so that I don't need reading glasses when I'm older. So at the moment, I'm slightly short-sighted Goodness and me. my eyes correct it and sort it out. And in the future, when my eyes change and I would, in theory, need reading glasses, my long-sighted eye will dominate and allow me to read. So I have I, neither of my eyes is right, but my vision together is quite good. It was the most painful thing I've ever had done. I bet it was. I, I hate pain. They shaved the front of my eyeball <gasps> off is the way they described it. So there are different ways you could have it done. And um, yeah. So um, uh, so eye so surgery eyes. is eye one. Eye surgery. Um, seeing. The, seeing. Uh, the, the anatomy of the eye, the biology of the eye, I imagine, is another way. Accidents as well. I had an accident. There's, we have a podcast on accidents, which yes. is one of my favourites. Yes. But eyes and accidents is, Ooh, is obviously very painful. interesting. I didn't have a, a direct accident in my eye. I hit my head. I fell off a ladder and landed on my head um, and had a huge egg of Ooh. like a big bruise of gathering of blood in the middle of my forehead, which then drained down and gave me two black eyes, which basically almost closed both of my eyes. So I couldn't see. So it was sort of an me. accidental thing. Um, but it's the experience of people throughout the ages of having accidents to their, to their eyes, eyes or to their facial area, um, which would be interesting as well. Obviously, um, there's the, the ability of, of being able to see. Yes. And throughout history, you can you can take any event, not any event, but a, an event which is, has affected a significant number of people and there will be a blind or partially sighted history of that event, yes. If you can find absolutely. the sources, if you can find absolutely. them, I mean, it, that's one of the great things. Another one for deafness as well. I just, recently, I'm, I'm doing some stuff on um, on Hiroshima. Weirdly, there are people now trying to find the testimonies of people who couldn't hear the bomb. Brilliant. There, it, it is brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant. So their experience of it and the way they wrote it down and the way they recorded the atomic bombing, it's fundamentally different from people who could hear. Uh, so it's so it's the idea of an eyewitness account almost. Or it's so, a, yeah, it's a non-eyewitness account. Or a non-eyewitness account in this but, respect. Um, but they'll be, yeah. Yeah, be they'll be blind, partially sighted. Go back to us yes. quickly. Be blind or partially sighted. Historical accounts of particular events, and often those accounts are hidden somewhere, aren't they? Um, it, it's not like you can go to the National Archives and go to the blind or partially sighted account section because there isn't one no. so it's a, it's it's more difficult to find which means um we are behind in the history of 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 those people and their testimonies because yes. we haven't found them yet yes. but there are people now that are out there actively looking to find out who was blind who was partially sighted at all of these events and how they experienced how them. they experienced it yeah it's cool isn't it it's very cool i think there's also a there's also a, a way that you can take that in another direction if you're looking at a take it back to your starting point was a historical event and the idea of eyewitnesses for historical events, so people who were actually there and saw it, and also the idea that you know you're not going to get a total vision of something. And Mark Bloch talks about this in his book, The Historian's Craft, where he talks about the concept of the battlefield. And if you are trying to, as a historian, recreate the battlefield, you are there is no way you are ever going to be able to do that because constantly different people's perspectives are, are very different. And that people in different parts on the battlefield have different views. Reports from them may not survive. Yeah. Um, oh, and then the, that applied to land battles as well as sea battles, obviously, especially sea battles if you're fighting over an area of sea that's 15 miles by 15 yes. miles. Yes. And it's not just eyewitness testimony, although that's a crucial part of it. It's command capability as well. So 
you 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 can't expect people to know and control things minutely if they don't know what they don't they can't even see and they've got no way of knowing what is going on. And I think one of the most important lessons you can learn, certainly as a maritime and naval historian, if you're writing about battles, is that the eyewitness testimonies by definition are flawed because they don't know what's happening elsewhere. They don't know what they don't know why certain things are happening. And often they try and explain things according to one reason. And that reason is wrong because they don't know about X, Y, and Z that's it's happening. Tunnel, tunnel vision. But that idea of tunnel visions just reminded me of something. When I was, um, I must have been 19, I was living in Paris and I was invited to go to a masked ball. And um, being deliberately difficult, I decided not to wear a mask, but I wore some goggles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went to an amazing flea market in the north of Paris. It's a bit, it's a bit like Camden Market. And I found this amazing pair of goggles. I got them from a military shop. And they were, they're not like goggles you can see through. Well, at least when you wear them, it looks like they're solid. But if you put them on, they've got these tiny slits that, that are sort of angled down one way and another. And so it looks like you can't see anything, but you can actually see brilliantly. And when I was wearing them at the ball, someone came up to me and said, why are you wearing some Second World War pilot's goggles? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so there's 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 got to be a history here of optical enhancement that's not to oh, do I've with... Got the, I've got some here. Not to do with lenses. Have Look you? at these. Were they anything like that? Uh, y- yes, very similar. Very ah. similar. And can you see the little the little slits? RAF Militaria. Yes, I can. RAF, oh, fantastic. RAF goggles. So yes. and there, is, um, there, is, there is definitely a history of optical enhancement. Well, it's like tunnel vision, but actual yes. tunnel vision. Actual, actual tunnel vision. Actual tunnel vision, yeah. Okay, so my starting point for eyes is in relation to another book that we're writing on the history of the Tudors. Yes. So it is um, the histories of the unexpected concept applied to the Tudors. And rather than it being all about Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, Mary Tudor, Edward VI, six wives, blah, 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 what we thought was that we would do it in a, an unexpected way. So the Tudors is all about eyes, um, accidents, uh, what else have we done? Shrinking. Shares, shrinking, um, all, all sorts of things. And so... For me, the Tudors is all about eyes, which is all about surveillance. I mean, those of you who who love the Tudors, I can understand why. As a professor of Tudor history, I can absolutely understand why. Fabulous figures. But one of the things that you may not know is that this is not a a totalitarian state because unlike 20th century dictatorships, they certainly don't have the resources and power uh, to, to, um, to eavesdrop in the way that um, Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany did. But nonetheless, there is a surveillance state in place and people were people's thoughts and deeds were observed. And you only need to look at that famous painting, the rainbow portrait of Elizabeth I that hangs at Hatfield House, which is the home of the, the Cecils, the Earls of, Earls of Salisbury. Um, and it bears the motto, which translated in Italian, no rainbow without the sun. And the idea is that it it's about the power and wisdom of the queen to uphold peace. And it depicts her holding, literally holding a rainbow. Hmm. And if you have a look at her dress, the sleeves of her dress and actually the body of the dress itself, they're decorated with tiny embroidered Eyes and ears. I'm just looking at it now, and it's one. It's like one of those creepy 3D uh, pictures where you know you stare at it and stare at it, and you suddenly see what you're supposed to be looking at. This one, you, they look like kind of folds in the silk, and then you realise they're eyes. And there are, we count them up: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
10, 11, 12, 13. <laughs> Lots of eyes. They're like 20. Imagine they're every, painting. but they're that's the whole point, isn't it? It's a bit creepy. They're, they're, they once you notice them, they're absolutely. Imagine everywhere. painting that. Yeah. Um, so this is, this represents the all-seeing and all-hearing power of the monarch of Elizabeth the First. Those of you who are familiar with your Tudor history and have read things like um, the book on the Elizabethan secret services, Stephen Alford's brilliant book on the Watchers, will know that Walsingham and his crew had tentacles everywhere. There were people people spying. And I'll read you an example from a letter from the Cambridge scholar Matthias Holmes in 1596. And he writes to the Earl of Essex. The Earl of Essex is one of the leading statesmen at the time, their favourite of Elizabeth I. And Holmes writes to him sort of saying, oh, isn't it wonderful your fame abroad and favour with the Queen, but then warns him to be careful to take foreign intelligences since all men's eyes are upon you now at home and abroad and your eyes must be upon all men spying out home treasons and foreign plots. So there's, a, there's this complete idea of distrust. And I think it's because the Tudor period with the Reformation has suddenly set things alight and there are there are different factions and different people there are tensions in in Europe and there are there are statutes passed there are acts passed through parliament that prosecute people for seditious thoughts and words and one of my favorite is from um, it's after the divorce between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon and this is a period when Henry is trying to assert his power, his power as the head of the head of the the state, but also head of the church. And people are around in the alehouses, and you know, are, are listening to what people are saying, and then reporting on them. It's a bit like Big Brother. And this is one poor woman um, who named Margaret Chancellor, who in fifteen thirty four called Henry VIII's new wife, Anne Boleyn, a, and I quote, a naughty whore and a goggle-eyed whore, mm. um, and saying, God save Queen Catherine. And in her defence, she basically says, I was drunk. The evil spirit did cause me to speak. And she was very penitent. And, you know, whether she meant these words or not, what, what it suggests, though, is that, you know, is that there is an undercurrent of criticism about the about the Tudor monarchy. And people would be punished for seditious speech like this, for political gossip, for criticising one's social superiors. And there were all sorts of barbaric um, punishments that would be inflicted on them. So nailing, for example, ripping, cropping, and chopping off people's ears. What does nailing involve? Nailing. You, you, you just nail, you hammer nails through somebody's ears. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, slitting the nostrils, oh, branding the cheeks and forehead with the letters F and A, mm. which stands for false accuser, boring holes through tongues with hot iron, and on rare occasion, putting out somebody's eyes. Oh, I see. So literally, come, literally stopping, literally stopping, stopping, stopping somebody's eyes. It does make you think that you can do the history of tongues, ears and foreheads. Yes, and branding. And branding. I think branding would be part of it all, wouldn't it? Yeah. There's a, there's a Salman Rushdie short story uh, where he describes uh, people in India and a father who has lots of children and decides that one of the best career options for his young son is actually to blind him hmm. so that he can be a beggar. 
yeah. and can make money for the family mm. by begging. And he, he, and he uses a, a like, little hot iron and pokes it in his eyes. That's the same plot device of Slumdog Millionaire. It is. The beginning. Yes. I, wonder yes. if, I wonder which one that came from. I bet it came from the Salmon Rushdie book. I bet it came from the Salmon Rushdie book. Mm. The idea is that you put, ac- you put acid in people's eyes and then you poke it with a stick. Yeah. And So the Slumdog Millionaire, it starts off with the, with the film starts off with a, a bit of a, a kid being blinded. Yes. The principle being that if you can sing beautifully and you're blind, you get more money. Hmm. Goodness me, it's about rackets. We've suddenly gone to a dark place. We have. Let's go, let's go away from that. Okay. Back to goggles. Do you want to go back to goggles? I, mean, let's, I can actually go somewhere, somewhere quite happy, actually. Oh, is, good. Is the idea of... of um, no, we like happy. Because we're doing Vikings as well. At the same time, we're doing Tudors. Yes. And I've been looking at various kind of literary devices which were used in the sagas to describe people. Mm. Um, and before we get to eyes, we'll just quickly mention foreheads because we're there at the time. But the, the they, they had a, a kind of way of... An established way of describing people to suggest whether they were trustworthy or untrustworthy or violent. There's a great one from Eagle's saga here. We, we meet um, Eagle Skallagrimson, who's a bit of a rogue. And um, the, the author really revels in his appearance. Eagle had very distinctive features with a wide forehead. His beard grew over a long, broad part of his face and his chin and entire jaw were very broad. He had a thick neck and broad shoulders, was prematurely bald and had a harsh-looking face. Now... Interestingly, a lot of these um, dis- physical descriptions are things which have been identified by modern scientists as being associated with high testosterone levels. And the the pattern is very visible in the sagas of baddies, of particularly violent, roguish, unpleasant, untrustworthy, difficult people sharing a lot of these physical features. And there's a certain belief that the, the Vikings had a kind of an understanding of physiognomy, which was the mm. medieval European science, they believed it was a science anyway, um, which associated your... We've actually talked about this before, haven't we? But not in relation to Vikings, but associated your appearance yes. with yes. your behavioural yes. behavioral characteristics. In which ca- this case, it was ruffians. And you know, the broader point here is that it was something that might have been passed down through Viking society so that people could identify trouble coming. Yeah, people also, with big, thick foreheads. Yeah, big beards and harsh-looking yes. faces. And then, yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But there's another aspect as well where um, in the saga, sagas, eyes are really, really important. They're seen as a, also a sort of a, a window into unsavory personalities as well as as well as nice personalities. And we have descriptions here of people being bright-eyed or happy-eyed, which is something yes. we'd associate yes. with. Um, but we also have uh, we have here a a beautiful but dangerous woman who's described as having thief's eyes. And other examples, you have people who have fierce-eyed, darting-eyed, or sour-eyed, and um, not quite the same as goggle-eyed. Whatever, no. so it's a weird thing. The, the goggle-eyed whore description that means like eyes bulging, out, like bulging sort of and, and sort of. Eyes that move around. Is it a, that do you might think it's a around. physical description of physical. someone he's? She, she's describing an, to be goggle-eyed in the Tudor period is a way of describing someone who is ugly or has yes wonky yes. eyes or bulging it's a, eyes. Wonky eyes. It's a roving and bulging eye, or like a sort of imagine like a frog's eye, yeah, sort of popping out. And those ideas, those ideas of, of eyes connected to character, uh, also connect to eyes being windows of people's souls yeah so you can see somebody's personality and that it's exactly the same that kind of eyes as an index of of people uh were used in the elizabethan period so so alongside some of the evidence that i've been talking about already uh, people would so if somebody had shifty eyes you know presumably a jesuit priest sort of you know um bound on on assassination or if somebody was particularly penitent mm -hmm. The particularly humble, the tear tear filled eyes were were exactly the opposite. You know that you showed that you're desperately sorry. Yeah. Whenever I'm um, whenever I'm uh, in trouble, I I I, I, I often cry and, and instantly <laughs> forgiven. Uh, so it's the eyes as ways of communicating. Eyes eyes as commun. Well, part I mean that that is about yes. eyes as communication, but it's also about um it's about reading people's eyes. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Eye contact. Yes. I'm going to just move away quickly from people's eyes to objects' eyes. Objects' eyes. Objects' <laughs> eyes, which is a okay. phrase I've just invented. Excellent. Uh, ships have eyes, and ships had Ooh. eyes. So um, periscopes. Per oh, like that, no, no. I was thinking about not thinking about that at all. But oh. that's really interesting because you could do the history of periscopes, the history of looking at sea, and you yes. can do history of telescopes and nighttime telescopes. And you could do World War One. You know those little periscopes they popped yeah, over yeah, there, yeah, yeah. and how you actually see and how you look yes. and how it works and and um, ooh, I'm going to buy my I'm going to buy my daughter, my youngest daughter, a, a submarine, a periscope. Oh, right, okay, for, there's a little, like a little spy periscope that you can get. Yeah, she's obsessed with spies, and she can, it means she can look round corners. Oh yeah, looking around corners is good. Anyway, so so the maritime sphere is an important area for eyes, but one of the things that has been discovered, and these are really really from really old shipwrecks. So we're talking about 450 BC, currently the time that Herodotus was about writing history. The grandfather of history. The you grandfather mean? of history. Yes. Athenian warships, they found on wreck sites things which they now understand are eyes. They are actually eyes of the ship. So they're... Um, Painted on, well, like you get a kind of, they look like a marble disc with, yep. a, with, a, with, a, with a hole in it for a nail. And the nail is hammered through, and the, those marble discs are decoration which go on the hull, and they are literally they are literally the eyes of the ship. Huh. So the ship has symbolic eyes. The ship has physical, yes, but they yes. are they are. If, if you pick it up out of the water now, that artifact is an eye of a ship. 
Wow. So it's a physical artifact as well as it opens up the world of trying to understand the metaphorical artifacts, the metaphorical point of why ships might have had eyes back in um, in ancient Greece. But it's not just in ancient Greece. It's also to do with figureheads on 18th century warships. You know, those, those yep. remarkable yep. Things, sort of carved figures which yes, have yes, a, yes. a weird appearance and they often have goggle eye. They're often goggle eyed like Anne Boleyn. They often have bulging eyes. And th- the, the idea behind this is that the ship actually could see it, it, it made the ship a living thing yeah an eye being something that was so kind of consciously associated with living and existing the yep. eye is open as opposed to the eye being shut or the eye being glazed and wow. and allowed the ship to the sailors were almost helping the ship find its way it looked it could look out for you it could protect you it, it was alert it's absolutely fascinating, and there's a collection of ships' eyes. So you can go if you wow. go if you go to um, various museums, particularly shipwreck yep. museums in Turkey. It's very often that they've they've found a ship. They've also found the eyes of the ship, and they're wow. circular discs. They're about the size of a dinner plate, and they've got a hole in the middle for a lead spike. Goodness me, those, those ships' figureheads, yeah. fascinating. I had a tour around the new. It's called the Box in Plymouth, and it's the new museum. It's the museum and library, and they've had this huge HLF Heritage Lottery Fund grant. They've turned it into this amazing space, which is going to house all the archives from the city and the museum all in one place. And they have built this incredible structure on the back. The box is basically because it's on the back and it's like this hanging glass archive. But then they've got this wonderful mezzanine level, and they're going to hang all the ship's heads mm. there. So you imagine three ton of ship's head mm. like just suspended from the ceiling. I reckon there's a really interesting history of ship's figureheads to be written. So I know at the moment Ooh. there are a couple of kind of pamphlets and they're yep. just like they changed from this to this and they were made out of this type of wood. Then, But no one's actually thought about why on earth there might be figures who are Native Americans, or there might be dogs, or there might be women. And if they're women, why do they look like that? How that changed, who was doing it, who made them, why it was made. There's an amazing cultural history of figureheads, which no one's... And very, very visual as well. Very visual. Stunning. Yeah, there's, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful collection down in Devonport. Yeah. Um, Th- those are the ones that are going. Oh, I, I see, think. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they need someone needs to do it, and they need yeah. to work out why and why they were coloured. We did a podcast on colour. Why some yeah. are coloured and why some aren't. Um, the, Vas- the Vasa has wonderful decorations like that as well. It's also to do with naming, naming ships as well. So so uh, you, you might have a ship called the Benbow, and that was named after the famous Admiral Benbow. But then you might have um, a ship called uh, Boxer or something when you've got some admiral who's responsible for naming ships and he named them all after his dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Fido. Yeah. But there was... Um, Rex. It's really important and interesting, and because particularly because ships travel all over the world, and they meet different cultures, and they get inspired by different people, and they pick up different artisans from wherever they go different artists so there's a, there's like an amazing international cultural history of cultural exchange um which is visible in shipwreck Shit. figureheads i want to i'm just going to stop doing this i'm going back to university i'm going to write a phd I think you should. on I think ship you should. figureheads i think you should that would be brilliant putting out of eyes i want to go back to that yeah one of the most famous examples of this those of you who know your shakespeare is in king lear and the duke of gloucester has his eyes put out and it's this awful scene where the king's daughters goneril and Regan, these are the two nasty ones, rather than Cordelia, who's the lovely one. Lear's sort of gone off and his his loyal man, Gloucester, is basically accused of treason by by the daughters. And there's a scene in, I think it's it's Act 3, Scene 7, 
where basically they put out his eyes. Mm. And I'm just going to read you this. So Gloucester comes in, and then Regan says, Ingrateful fox, tis he. Then another man, Cornwall, said, Bind his, bind fast his corky arms. What mean your graces? Good, my friends, consider you are my guests. Do me no foul play, friends. And Cornwall says, Bind him, I say. And then Regan calls him, hard, hard, oh, filthy traitor. And it goes on and on like this. Regan plucks his beard, which I thought you'd be interested in. For, mm-hmm. We should have talked about that with our... It, plucking somebody's beard is a way of totally insulting them. And then they go they go on sort of insulting him and, and questioning him about, about his treason. And then then they say, why, why have you sent him to Dover? Wherefore to Dover, sir? And then Gloucester replies, because I would not see thy cruel nails pluck out his poor old eyes, nor thy fierce sister in his anointed flesh stick boorish fangs, the sea with such a storm as his bare head, in hell black night endured, would have buoyed up and quenched the stelled fires, yet poor old heart he holped the heavens to rain, if wolves had at thy gate howled that stern time, thou shouldst have said, good porter, turn the key, all cruels else subscribed, but I shall see the winged vengeance overtake such children. And this, I mean, <laughs> makes you wonder what was going on the in wrong, the wrong, head. the wrong thing to say. Pluck out his old eyes, because then they see that his eyes are plucked out. First, they take one eye out. Then his servant comes along and tries to help him. The servant is stabbed in the back, mm-hmm. and then they say, they say that. That Regan says, one of the daughters says, um, one side will mock the other because he's only got one eye with a sort of bleeding cool. sort of gape. And I will pluck out the other two <laughs> and the other eye comes out. And when you see this on stage, it is incredible. I've seen several, several examples, the most powerful of which Gloucester is in a chair with his back to the audience. And the two, and so what you effectively see is the the eyes of the people who are doing the gouging looking right at you, and then <laughs> it's sort of—I mean, it's obviously not quite like that—but it's pulled out, and then the bloodied eyes are thrown oh, aside. Gosh! And there are actual accounts of this happening mm. at the time. Fifteen eighty-nine. There's an account by Francis Walsingham from the Elizabethan ambassador in Constantinople, Edward Barton. He writes of a Greek friar who was caught preaching Christianity to the Turks, who condemned him to an agonising death, which involved having his eyes pulled out. And just to paraphrase it, he was raised up by cord and pulley and dropped upon a sharp iron hook and left there to hang, still, still preaching while he's being tortured in this way, until his angry punishers then cut out his tongue, they cut off his nose, his ears and fingers, and finally, they put out his eyes, finally stoning him to death. And he survived this ordeal, we are told, for some five hours. Wow. What about that? Where are you going to go with eyes? I've got one more. All right, go on then. One more, which is, very quickly, which is lover's eyes, which is Elizabeth I and the Earl of Leicester. Yes. And it relates to one of the final letters that Leicester wrote Leicester was one of Elizabeth's favourites, Robert Dudley, from those of you in her her early life. uh, She was supposed to be infatuated with him. Um, Before he dies, he writes her a letter and she called him, her nickname for him was The Eyes. And if you have a look at this letter, over the O's, the double O's, he does little eyelids. 
And if you have a look here, you can see he signs himself by your most faithful and most obedient, and then eyes. And if you have a look at the most, the most has the little yeah, yeah. eyelids over it. Yeah. Clever, huh? Very clever. Um, why would he do that? As a, it's a secret code explaining his love and affection for the queen. Mm. It's interesting. So we started this off by saying that the Tudors were all about eyes, and it's not. The point is, it's not just us as historians saying it was all about eyes. It, they are all about eyes. It really is all yes. about eyes. Yes. And they, they, um, the, the, the image of the eye, whether it's in Elizabeth dress in the rainbow portrait or it's in that letter there, those are just a few of the examples. It's a, it's a kind of a visual trope that they keep coming back to, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> I should listen to it on my daily commute. Amazing. Um, <laughs> if you've enjoyed that, we did. Do please check us out online, historiesoftheunexpected.com. You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on um, Instagram, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. Flickr. Everywhere. We've Twitter? Got, um, you said Twitter? Yeah, li- loads of live shows. Hopefully there are still some left as and when you listen to this podcast. If not, um, check out our book. It's called Histories of the Unexpected. How Everything Has a History. It's available everywhere and um, and we're very, very proud of it. It's awesome. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for, for listening. listening. Bye, Bye guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.